Thank you uh, so much, Tony, and just a dear friend for, for a long, long time. As if, if my memory uh, serves me correctly, I believe that uh, I was here back in about 1988, and that seems hard to imagine that that much time has, uh, has passed, but, but indeed it has, and uh, we're glad to be back here in, the, in this part of the great state of Tennessee. Appreciate the invitation immensely. I, I, I'm sure Tony's had the experience, you know, some, sometimes someone calls. Typically on a Sunday morning, they'll say, uh, what time's your preaching? And uh, now down in Florida, it was really easy. And it would kind of irritate me. I, I knew when people ask you that, they mean uh, they're not coming to Bible study, but they want to know what time the worship assembly starts. And so sometimes I would just simply say, well, we start at 9 o'clock, which we did down in Florida. And they said, well, that's when your preaching is? And I said, no, ma'am, our Bible study starts at 9, and we, we assemble. The whole church does at, at 10 o'clock. But at least when people say that, what time is preaching? Now, somehow they associate preaching with the, with the assembly, with the idea of our, of our coming together as, as God's people to worship. And typically we say, as no doubt as ha- has been said, that there are five acts of worship in our assembly, preaching being one of them. We sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. We pray certainly to the Lord. And when we eat the Lord's Supper, we do so, we do so in remembrance of, of the death burial, uh, of the death and burial of Jesus and with view toward his, his coming again one day. But then when we think of, of giving and preaching in particular and start trying to relate to how that uh, is associated with worship. Um, perhaps it's a little more difficult to understand, or, or not nearly as obvious. Perhaps it's there's no doubt those things mentioned here. You know, preaching, praying, the Lord's Supper, and giving, and um, and giving and singing. That those are things that we do. I, I always appreciated in in Taiwan or in Chinese the way they translate worship is zuo li bai. It's you do worship. It's something that you do. Worship, uh, worship involves, it involves our emotions, of that no question, involves our volition, our conscience, our intellect and thoughts, but, but ultimately it manifests itself in very specific acts, and, and that is what we are focused on this evening. We're, we're just particularly concerned with whether preaching is an act of worship, and in what way and how does uh, how can we enhance that experience? What ought it to mean to us? And what we want to do is is look at just briefly some uh, basically the the fundamental properties of preaching. What what that means? Appreciate the the passage read this evening. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching in the old American Standard Version, which which I'll be using this evening of 1901. Uh, there's a definite article there, and it, I looked it up, and it is there. It pleased God through the foolishness of the preaching to save them that, that believe. And so we want to know, we want to look first at the essential nature of, we'll call it the property of preaching. Then we want to think just for a few minutes about the, shall we just call them permutations of preaching, various other things that would be subsumed within the, under the heading of preaching. And then finally, uh, the, the position or the setting of preaching as relates to the assembling together of God's people. The, the assembly, uh, the idea of Christians coming together, that's, that's just an integral part of our relationship with God. It's an essential part of our relationship with God. 
and it is something that, that Christians neglect to their own to their own hurt. Uh, that classic passage in Hebrews 10:25, having listed all of the various motivations for for Christians to assemble, he warns or he he exhorts that that Christians provoke one another unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And in that assembly, that assembly, these acts of worship are essential parts of it, and we're concerned with preaching particularly. We, uh, we, we want to understand how precisely. I, we, we say that. I've heard it uh, since my granny and papa took me to the services of the Kirksey Church of Christ way way over in West Kentucky uh, for many years. Preachers would speak of the five acts of worship. I continue to speak about the five acts of worship. Nobody's given me any good reason to think differently. There are five acts of worship. But let's just focus on this idea of preaching as worship. It is an act. There's no question about that. But is it an act of worship? Is it always an act of worship? What makes it so? And and who's doing the worship and, and so on? Those, I think, are, are essential questions for you know for us to ask and to and to hopefully understand it more clearly and hopefully enhance our, our participating in this great act. But let's think first about preaching, just the, its essential nature. Preaching's property, if you will. In, in the Old Testament, you'll find passages like in the book of Jonah. God telling there the prophet to go to Nineveh and preach unto it the preaching that I bid to thee. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word there means simply to, to call, to proclaim. It even sometimes is translated read. In Isaiah 61 and verse 1, uh, Jehovah has anointed me to preach good tidings. That's the word in Jonah, but also to proclaim liberty. Yet another word, which means to bear or proclaim or to preach or show forth. I, I particularly like Ecclesiastes chapter 1 where Solomon identifies himself as the preacher, the kahileth, the idea of the leader of an assembly. And um, when you get over into Hebrews, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, there the writer says that the preacher sought out uh, to find acceptable words, those that were written uprightly, words of truth, words that were golds and nails and fastened as the words of the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd, that being, uh, that being of course, the Lord himself. So in the Old Testament, the idea of preaching, uh, proclaim, to call, to, to advocate, even to read. We come to the New Testament, the classic passage, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, preach the word. There the older man tells the younger man, keruso, the Greek word, the idea of being a herald, announcing something, and, and particularly in a, in, in a public fashion. The idea of proclaiming, making something known extensively, telling it everywhere. And then again in Ephesians 3 and verse 8, Paul says that God had privileged him to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he uses yet a different word, euangelizo. And when we transliterate that word, that's where we get our word evangelize. Euangelizo is the idea of announcing Good news, telling the good news, making known the gospel, and even even passively having the gospel preached to someone. So whether, whether we fan the pages of the Old Testament or we come to the New Testament, we look at the original words, we look at the translated words, 
one thing they all have in common, one thing that's all built into that, is the notion of proclamation. Someone speaking, someone announcing, uh, and then then there are various permutations of that, which involve yet another uh, another set of words, if you will. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. We know that passage. It took Paul a, a number of days to arrive in uh, to arrive in Troas, and he hung out there a number of days. He was waiting. He was waiting to have the opportunity to assemble together with the brethren there on the first day of the week to break bread. And Scripture says he discoursed with them. And that's in the American Standard Version. I think the King James says he preached to them. But it's, it, it, is a, it is a different word, at least in the original language, uh, dialegami, the dia part, a, a preposition that means the idea of through. Lego just means to talk about something, to, to have things to say about something. And so discourse is a, is a good translation, the idea, uh, the idea of working through something. And it's translated in a variety of ways. It, it means to reason, to discuss, and in some settings, it's the idea of continue, uh, contending, even, even disputing about certain things, making a case and proving it. Uh, then you have words like reprove, rebuke, exhort, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. And then he goes on to say, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. So we have, we have preach, we have discourse, we have reprove, we have rebuke, we have exhort, and then we have the word teaching. And then 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, we're told that the Scripture, the inspired Word of God, is profitable, among other things, for instruction in righteousness. So we add yet another word to our, to our repertoire with, with regard to preaching and teaching. Now, uh, these words, uh, let's see, preach and teach and reprove and rebuke and exhort and instruct, and we could even add to the list edify. And I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but you could get out of concordance and undoubtedly the list would be, there would be columns of words that all fall within that general category. And they're all related to preaching in one way, shape, form, or fashion. But what do they all have in common? What, what's the common, what's the essential nature of all of this? Well, we, we've already said, well, it's preaching and proclaiming announcing, but I would suggest that that one thing that ties them all together is speaking. And that's why it's perfectly good, makes perfect sense for for people to think of a preacher. And so are you speaking tonight? And they're not talking about you, are you talking to me, or are you, are you just engaged in casual conversation, but are are you speaking tonight? Are you going to open your mouth and have things to say about the Word of God? And that's a, that's a good way to tie it all together, preaching. And when we think about preaching, as we raise the question, preaching as an act of worship, preaching as worship, we're talking about people opening their mouth, they're speaking. And that speaking may manifest itself in a variety of ways as we have just seen. But then that leads us to kind of the, the money part of the lesson, the, the particulars of preaching, the, the setting of it. When we talk about when we talk about preaching and we talk about preaching being worship, what specifically do we have in mind? Uh, I was talking to a, a denominational gentleman, a, a friend of mine. He unfortunately is still in a denomination, and we were 
talking about the Lord's church. And he says, oh, yeah, in the church of Christ. And he said, women can't be preachers. And I said, apparently you're not married, are you? You know, and, uh, and I, <laughs> because we, we use that word in, in, in various loose ways. Uh, but no, we're talking about preaching. The idea, the idea of someone taking uh, the floor in an assembly such as I am doing at this very moment and opening his mouth and speaking forth things that relate to God and his will for us. And we are concerned with the question as to how that constitutes worship. And if it's worship, in, in, in what way am I involved in the, in the process? The word worship is, is um, not an unclear term. Unfortunately, people, I think, sometimes try to make it so. If you turn to a good English dictionary, you look up the word worship, it carries with it the idea of reverence offered to a divine or supernatural, divine being or supernatural power. An act of expressing such reverence. So even English dictionary gets it. You know, it's, a, it's an act. It's something you actually do. We go to the Hebrew language, and, I, and as far as I can tell, I'm um, not sure how to pronounce it, koshal, something like that, the, the, the common word translated worship in the, in the Old Testament carries with it the same idea. It means to prostrate oneself before God. So, example, when Abraham was doing what God told him to do, taking his only son to Mount Moriah to offer him as a burnt offering, uh, Genesis 22 and verse 5 says they got to a certain point. He told the servants to hang back, and he said, The lad and I will go yonder and worship. They had not been worshiping up to that point. He says, "We're going. You stay here. We're going there to worship. Again, emphasizing an act of reverence, the idea of prostrating oneself before God. We come to the New Testament and the, the typical word, not the exclusive one, but the word proskuneo. The uh, pros means the idea of to or toward before, if you will. And then it's the idea of, of kissing uh, before, bowing down, kissing the feet, an act of reverence. Any good lexicon will tell you. And so in the book of Revelation, when we're told that the Apostle John at some point was so overwhelmed with what he saw there in these great visions, he fell down to worship before the feet of the angel. And, of course, we know that the angel very quickly corrected him on that matter and said, no, 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 we, you worship God. Uh, worship, if we sum it all together, worship is, and in, that's in the old American Standard Version, the, the 1901 version, about every time in the New Testament the word worship is used, you'll find in a footnote it says an act of reverence paid to God. To me, that's, that, that gets right to it, nails it down. It is an act of reverence paid to God. So, understand what preaching is. Understand its essential nature. I understand the various uh, manifestations of preaching, exhort, edify, and rebuke, and, and so on. I understand that, that preaching is largely... The idea of someone speaking as other people listen. And now I understand that worship, uh, worship is an act of reverence paid to God. And we're trying to put those two uh, concepts together. But then that leads us naturally to the question of the assembling of our own selves. Hebrews 10.25 in the American Standard Rendering, the assembling of 
your own or our own selves together. This gathering this evening, you know, you, you gathered this morning, uh, we, we broke off for a period of time, and we have regathered here this evening on the Lord's Day, and we do so for specific reasons, uh, you know, not the least of which God tells us to, but the assembly, the, the nature of the assembly. In 1 Corinthians, if you start in chapter 11, about the middle of chapter 11, and you come all the way, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, within those chapters is contained, or, or I suggest by, by the Spirit of God, paint, there's a montage, a, a, a picture painted of first century Christians coming together on the Lord's Day, they did it every Lord's Day, and they essentially engaged in five specific acts, one of those being someone taking the floor and speaking to the assembly. The very nature of that assembly, it was the idea of doing it before God. It was the idea of things being God-word. And, and so that, that in and of itself would say, well, if that's the nature of that gathering together, then those acts done in, in that assembly must by, must by definition be acts of reverence paid to God. And certainly we'll see, see the point here. In that section of Scripture, uh, uh, you'll find the people of the assembly, they're Christians. They are Christians, people who have obeyed the gospel, and on every first day of the week, you'll see the people of the assembly. You'll see the place of the assembly, not, not, so much a, not so much the building, the specific locale, but rather that there was an agreed-upon place where they gathered together. Uh, sometimes Bible, the Bible will make reference to the church in somebody's house, for example. Uh, sometimes uh, we gather perhaps the, in Ephesus that Christians met in the school of Tyrannus. But be that as it may, at some particular place, a particular group of people gathered together, and they did so at a particular time. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, uh, the, they gathered on the first day of the week. In some, in some versions, and correctly so, it's the first, it, it is every first day of the week. It's, it's distributive in nature. It's every week that it happened. And there were specific activities. They didn't just get together and wing it. There, you know, they didn't, it was an impromptu thing. Uh, they didn't decide when they got there what they were going to do. It, it was a set thing. They gathered and they sang together. Uh, there were psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They spoke to one another. Uh, someone would take the floor and lead the brethren in prayer collectively, their collective hearts and minds going up before God. Collectively, I would suggest that they also brought their bounty before God. And they did so equally so in the, in the mutual partaking of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is certainly it's an individual act, but it is also a communion. It is a communion of us with God, but also a communing of us with one another. It's a, it is a mutual and collective act as well. But uh, more particularly, and we're focused on the idea of preaching, somebody spoke to the assembly. Every time Christians assemble together, uh, brothers, faithful brothers, will take the floor and would address the assembly. And, and so I, I suggest to you, there is that picture there. It's a montage. You, you see the bits and pieces of it. 
But basically what you have described in that section of 1 Corinthians is what we call going to church. It's the idea of going to worship God, assembling together, is characterized in other places. But that, that would lead us to a part of that section, of that description of the assembled church in the first century, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because it really gets to the heart of the matter, particularly as it relates to preaching as worship, I believe. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 sometimes sometimes is given is given short shrift because when it opens up, it says it said you have Paul basically in the imperative mood commanding people desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Well, I I've not met a prophet in my whole lifetime, and neither have any of you. There are no prophets, and and for. And for many centuries, this side of the first century, there have been no prophets. There, have, there has been no transferal, no endowment of spiritual gifts. The apostles, the apostles all passed away. They died. They were the only ones who could do that. Now, having said that, though, having said that, though, that it doesn't follow that there's nothing in this section of Scripture that is pertinent to the question at hand. The idea of a brother in Christ taking the floor and speaking to the assembly. That, that's kind of heart, and that's the heart and soul of the, the, one of the controversies that existed uh, in the church of Christ in Corinth so long ago. Paul is concerned about who can speak in the assembly. He's concerned about who can do it and when they can do it and under what circumstances they can do it. And when he concludes that chapter, verse 40, 1 Corinthians 14, he says, plainly, let all things be done. It's something you do decently and in order. One of the, the word ecclesia, we use that word many times, the called out, a beautiful way to, for us to mentally picture, uh, spiritually speaking, God's people all over the planet as a body, a community, called out of this world by the by the preaching of the gospel and then and then people hearing and believing and obeying it. But then that same word ecclesia is often used in a more specific sense. The sense in which we are here this evening, gathered together in an assembly. So we can assemble together, we can come into an assembly, we can go to an assembly. Uh, the Bible satisfies all of those particulars. But just quickly, uh, some passages that come to mind in 1 Corinthians 11 to verse 18. There the apostle speaks of coming together in the church. He refers specifically to church in the sense of the assembly. Verse 20, coming together in one place. Chapter 14 and verse 19, he says, in the assembly, in the church, I had rather speak, he said, I had rather speak uh, one word or five words with understanding than thousands that cannot be understood. Verse 23, he, he describes the whole church coming together in one place. Verse 26, he says, when you come together, verses 33 and 34, he says, as in all the assemblies of the saints. He limits what sisters in Christ may do in public assemblies. They are to keep silence. As regards who may take the floor and lead that assembly, he said the sisters are to keep silence. He says in, in verse 35 that it is a shame for women to speak in the assembly 
And then in uh, chapter 16 and verse 2, he says upon the first day of the week, every first day of the week, there he pegs the time. When was this happening? When were they coming together in the church, coming together, the whole church coming together? It was upon the first day of every week, and they were engaged in five specific things. And so then that would naturally lead us to look at chapter 14 about this, this idea of speaking in the assembly. Who, who speaks? Uh, who will take the floor and address the assembly? Now, I know back in the gospel accounts uh, you have record, for example, of, of Jesus uh, when he would go into the Jewish synagogue. Many similarities between the worship in the old in the Old Testament synagogues and the New Testament church. He would go into the synagogue, and on occasion he was invited to speak. On one occasion, he stood, he read the scripture, and he said, "Today is the scripture fulfilled in your hearing." It wasn't received all that well because they tried to take him outside and toss him headlong over a hill. The apostle Paul, as he went forth on his missionary journeys, would enter into synagogues places where he would be invited to speak. As you go through chapter 14, there is this whole discussion about there was a conflict about who may stand, what brothers may stand, and address the assembly. May brothers who had the gift of tongues stand and speak in the assembly in contrast to brethren who had the gift of prophecy. And the Apostle Paul says, he says, if any man speaks in a tongue, in verse 27, here's his inspired conclusion. If any man speaks in a tongue, let it be by two at the most three. He allowed that possibility. Now, ask yourself the question. You already know the answer to it. When he said they may speak, was he saying they could talk about the weather, they could talk about politics, or or talk about farming or or things of that nature. No, he's talking about talking, speaking about God's Word. But he limits it to two at the most three, but there had to be an interpreter. No interpreter? He said, keep silent. Speak to yourself and to God. Prophets, he said, could speak by two or three, and the others were to discern. Yet another spiritual gift. I think sometimes we Maybe we don't think as much as we ought about in the infancy of the Church of Christ there in the first century. They didn't go, they didn't go down to the local bookstore and buy New Testaments and songbooks and Bible study materials. As churches were established throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the apostles would endow people with spiritual gifts, enabling them, enabling them to teach scriptural lyrics or songs that they would sing uh, to one another enabling them to lead scriptural prayers, and most assuredly enabling those who took the floor in the assembly to speak forth the word of God. He says, if all prophesy one by one, all should prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may may be exhorted. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And he concludes by saying, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I want that one thing is for sure. First Corinthians 14, as you read what is discussed there, the apostle, the inspired apostle was concerned about order and decorum and reverence and decency in the context of our assembling ourselves together. But as you, as you go through this chapter, I, I, I notice several words, and this dovetails with what we've already established. Uh, there, the apostle Paul is concerned with teaching in 1 Corinthians 14. This is in the context of the whole church being assembled together. Verse 6, he says, Unless I speak to you either by way of revelation 
or knowledge, prophesying, or of teaching. We have the word instruct in verse 19. He, he said that in the assembly, it would be preferable to speak five words with understanding than, than to, uh, that he could instruct others also. Then he said 10,000 words in a tongue. So I have teaching. I have instruct. I have in verse 4 the word edify. In fact, that seems to be his favorite term, that the church may receive edifying. Whatever happens in our assembling, and more particularly as it relates to someone addressing the assembly, it ought to be. It ought to be concerned with the and focused on the edifying of the brethren. And then you have the word speak time and again, and will not and will not uh, appeal to each of these. The idea of people taking the floor one at a time, he said, and standing and speaking forth the word of God. That's what happened in the first century, and there's no good reason for it not to happen now, exactly as they did it then. So then that, that helps us to set the table as we try to, to understand particularly, you know, what, what all is involved in this matter of preaching as an act of worship in our assembly. Well, well, if preaching is an act of worship, well, who's the worshiper? I mean, to the eye, the only person doing anything is the person who's standing and speaking. And, and so wherein lies the worship there? And, and you could say, well, the, the preacher is acting and everyone else is reacting. And sometimes a preacher might rather ironically say, yeah, some people react by going to sleep, and some people by, you know, by, by twiddling their thumbs and a variety of things. But, but no, if, if this is to be an act of worship, we must understand how precisely we collectively are involved in this. And herein lies the answer. The worship lies in the ears, in the hearts, in the minds of all the assembly. The worship, the worship lies in the fact that we collectively hear the word of God and we give the amen. And we're able to say the amen at the conclusion. Worship comes from Amos 8 and verse 11 from hearing the words of the Lord. The act of worship lies when, when we collectively say amen to what has been said. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Now, not that we necessarily we articulate that. Amen is, is an attitude of mind and heart. Yes, let it be so. That's what God has said. We, we concur with that. We collectively agree with that and let it be so. The idea of, of collective worship being led. We have song leaders who lead us collectively in our worshiping of God in song. We have prayer leaders who collectively lead us in our worship of God uh, in, in prayer, our collective hearts and minds. We have preachers or teachers, those who take the floor and they speak forth God's word that we might collectively hear and give the amen, our assent to it. Acts chapter 4 and verse 23 comes to mind. Peter and John have been roughed up. They've been threatened. No more preaching in this name. They rejoined the brethren. Verse 23 says, They reported all that had happened to them. And then when they, that is the brethren, the collective, when they heard it, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, thou who didst make the heaven and earth and sea and all that it in them is, who by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, did say... Why did the heathen rage? They collectively recite from, quote from, the Old Testament. 
Again, it's the idea of, of collectively people being led uh, in expressing what God has said about things. Nehemiah chapter 8, I think, perhaps captures the essence of this better than any. This was an instance where Ezra uh, would stand before this great assembly of Jewish people who had been returned to Jerusalem. The Bible even says he, he stood upon a pulpit of wood. I like that. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 4, that had been made for that purpose. Scripture says he opened the book. I guess he would have opened it in this way, as opposed to our bound books now. He opened the book. He was above all the people. And when he opened it all, the people stood up. And Ezra blessed Jehovah the great God. And the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands, bowed their heads and worshipped Jehovah with their faces to the ground. And that leads me naturally, I think, to the, to the grand closing passage, I think, that ties all of this together. And back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The apostle says, he's still dealing with this, this question about who may take the floor. And there must, have been, there must have been quite a bit of disorder in the assemblies of the church at Corinth. And, as, and, people, and, and people going back to their base human nature jockeying with and, and in conflict with one another about who would take the floor and address the assembly, and Paul lines it out, who may. But then he concludes in verse 23, If therefore the whole church be assembled together, and all speak with tongues, and there come in men unlearned or unbelieving, will they not say that you're mad? They'll say you're nuts. What are these people doing? If you have brothers exercising that gift and nobody can understand what is being said, what has been accomplished there? But I love verse 24. If all prophesy and there come in one unbelieving or unlearned, he is reproved by all, he is judged by all, the secrets of his heart are made manifest. Reproved, judged, and secrets of his heart are made manifest. Any Anything that professes to be preaching in an assembly of God's people that does not accomplish those things has failed miserably. Gospel preaching, preaching by its nature. Now the prophets speak as they by revelation receive God's message and by inspiration spoke it infallibly. Today preachers and teachers of the word of God open the book and study it and then, and then teach people what God has said. But either way it comes down to this that the message is designed to reprove, it's designed to judge, it's designed to lay bare the secrets of the heart so that those in the assembly will fall down, one in the assembly will fall down on his face and worship God, declaring that God is among you indeed. And isn't that ultimately what we are all about when we, when we assemble the idea that God is among us. And notice how that is so beautifully related to the act of preaching. When the prophets spoke in the assemblies one by one, when they stood and they, in, in an orderly fashion, they presented God's word, and, and those unlearned or unbelieving in the assembly, they would be sitting there and they see their lives simply laid bare before them. Somewhere the Bible says that the Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword and it does what? It lays us naked before Him with whom we have to do. When the Word is preached like that, it will prick hearts and people will, people will, as it were, fall upon their faces and they will worship God, declaring that God is among you indeed. Therein lies the nature 
uh, preaching as worship. That's, that's, that's basically what, what Paul has described, what, what we call an invitation message. And I would say this evening, if you're not a Christian, if you have yet to come to the redemptive blood of Christ, it's precious blood. We are redeemed not by gold and silver, costly things uh, from our vain manner of life handed down from our fathers, but by precious blood as of a lamb without blemish. It's only by the blood of Christ that we can be reconciled to God. And Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Look into your life. Look at your relationship with God. If you have not come to the blood, then you're separated from God. Believe in Jesus. Obey his every command. He said, repent or perish. He said, confess me before men. He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Brother or sister in Christ, reflect upon your life. Reflect upon the way you live your life. May it be that those in our assemblies always see that God is among us indeed as the word is preached in purity, simplicity, and yet plainly opening our lives before God. Uh, May our hearts be pricked and when we are lacking, when there are those things left undone, may we repent, may we turn. May we ask our brothers and sisters to pray with and for us as together we stand.